Well, this morning we will launch into a study of the book of First John, and uh, we will begin really with a, an overview and an introduction to the book of First John in a message I've entitled "Why Study First John." I want us to look at the reasons for studying uh, the book of First John. Before we get started, let's uh, turn to our Lord and our God and ask for His help for this time. Our Lord God, we have uh, sung of your greatness, of your kingship, of the eternality of your kingship, and how mighty and wise and awesome and loving you are. And Lord, your light and your love shines through the book of First John. And Lord, we just want to ask for your help as we begin this study, that you would help us to rightly understand your word and to apply it to our lives, to not, not leave it just as facts in our head, but that your word would leap off the pages of Scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit and transform our lives, how we think, how we live, how we act, what we say. Lord God, do your work in us. Accomplish the purposes in our lives for which this book is is given. May the purposes of the book uh, be fulfilled and come to completion in our lives, Lord God, for your glory and for our good. Help me as I teach and help us to listen, Lord, to listen um, with intent and with um, uh, just a, a level of, uh, of attention, Lord God, that, that your word is deserving of, since it is your word and comes with us with authority. Help us to submit ourselves to it for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, this morning as we launch into the uh, study of 1 John, uh, I want us to think about why we would study 1 John. There's many books of the Bible we could turn to. In one sense, we are looking at the book of 1 John um, because it's written by the same author, as we'll see. And several of you asked that uh, when we finish the Gospel of John, can we continue on in, into the writings of John in his writings in, in 1 John. But there are, there are more profound theological reasons uh, to study First John, and, and these are what I want to bring to your attention this morning. And I want to show you the importance of a book like First John by asking you to think about the assurance of your salvation. What do you think about assurance of salvation? What do you think about your assurance? Are you truly assured that if, that if today were the last day of your life, you were to die, and you were to meet the Lord, and He were to ask you, uh, why he should let you into his heaven, would you have an appropriate answer? And are you sure today that you would really go to heaven, that he would indeed grant you access to his heaven? You see, the answer has been muddied over the years that the church has been in existence. In the medieval church, Gregory the Great taught that the constant anxiety is the only safe attitude until life is over and temptation passed. He said, assurance of salvation and the feeling of safety engendered by it are dangerous for anybody and would not be desirable. It would not be desirable even if possible. Is that your attitude? Like Gregory the Great or perhaps it's like Thomas Aquinas who taught that the actual certainty of salvation is unattainable, unquote. The Council of Trent also held a similar position to that of Thomas Aquinas, that is, personal assurance of salvation is unattainable. And I just quote that from the Council of Trent. It says this, No one, moreover, so long as he is in this mortal life, ought so far to presume as regards the secret mystery of divine predestination as to determine for certain that he is assuredly in the number of the predestinate as if it were true that he is justified, either cannot sin anymore, or if he do sin, that he ought to promise himself an assured repentance. For except by special revelation it cannot be known whom God has chosen unto himself, unquote. So the Council of Trent, which I remind you is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, says that assurance of salvation is really not possible except by special revelation of God. If, if God gives you a special revelation clearly for him and tells you you're one of the predestinate, then you can have assurance of salvation. But short of that, you cannot have assurance of salvation. So uh, it, in the Roman Catholic system, even today, 
the Pope himself is not assured of salvation unless he has some kind of special revelation uh, from, from God that he is indeed saved. So even the Pope himself, and that, that's true of cardinals and others as well. But is this really what the Bible teaches about the assurance of salvation? In commenting on one of the passages we'll look at in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, the reformer Martin Luther highlighted, highlighted the importance of the assurance of salvation. He said this, Indeed, I must believe and be sure that I not only shall have, but do have eternal life. Commentator Christopher Bass points out that for Luther, assurance is part and parcel of saving faith, precisely because it is grounded on the promises of God, which were fulfilled in the work of Christ and not on the works of man, unquote. You see, for Luther, assurance of salvation was not only possible, but it was mandatory if you truly had the true gospel, if you truly understood uh, saving faith and who it is that saves you, then assurance of salvation would come along with that. In his Institutes of Christian Religion, John Calvin wrote this definition of saving faith. He said this, quote, Now we shall possess a right definition of faith if we call it a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us, founded upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ, both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts through the Holy Spirit, unquote. So you see, John and Calvin, too, saw that assurance of salvation is part and parcel of the gospel. If you truly understand the gospel, Luther and Martin held that you would also have an assurance of salvation. So who was right? What are we to think about the assurance of salvation well, we will certainly see that when we get to study 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. But this morning, I want us to, to see how important a book like 1 John is to answering a question that is uh, so pertinent, so practical to our everyday lives. Remember, that it was Martin Luther who could, hardly, um, who could hardly live because every day he was full of fear that God was going to judge him as a sinner. And it wasn't, only until, it wasn't until after the Lord really saved him and he came to understand the, the true gospel of salvation by faith alone and Christ alone that he had any peace in his lives, in his life. So this morning we're going to look at, at why does we, we're studying the epistle of 1 John. So the, the assurance of salvation is surely one of those things, and we'll point that out um, a, a little bit uh, more later in this morning's message. But I want to start with kind of an overview of, of the, this book. Why are we studying 1 John? We're studying it, in essence, because, it is, uh, because of its authorship. We're studying it because of its authorship. Who wrote it? Well, who did write it? Well, first of all, we could say that the Holy Spirit is the divine author of 1 John. 1 John was one of the books that the church uniformly or universally affirms as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean when we say that a book is inspired by the Holy Spirit? Well, we get a glimpse of what it means from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. I'll read that to you. 2 Peter 2, uh, 20 and 21. But, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will... But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And, and the way that that's translated in verse 21, that that's no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one owns interpretation, um, makes it sound like we're talking about the interpretation of Scripture rather than the, origin, the origination of Scripture. But it is the origination of Scripture that is what the Apostle Peter is talking about there. Say no prophecy of Scripture ever originates from man. It originates from the Holy Spirit. And, and the whole idea of, of the human will being moved by the Holy Spirit is, is that like of a sails, sailing boat whose uh, sails are filled by the wind and the wind moves the boat along in the direction of the wind. That, that's the idea with inspiration. That yes, God used men to write the scriptures, fallible men. But these men were so moved by the Holy Spirit that what they wrote is infallible, is without error, because the Lord superintended it, not dictating it, but superintending what was actually written. 
what are the implications of inspiration? What difference does it make? Well, I think a good way to summarize this is looking at an example from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Here, Paul tells the Thessalonian church, he says this, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So you see, when Paul preached the message that he had received from the Lord, when he preached that to the Thessalonians, they didn't receive it just as Paul's message. They received it as what? as coming from God himself. And, and that's a good picture, a good illustration of what it means, or what difference it means makes that something is inspired. I can give you lots of wisdom. I can help you think through situations. But I can never give you something that's direct communication from God, unless I go to his word, which we're doing this morning. But, but here, when we read the word of God, you could just kind of almost forget the human authors because God is speaking through them to us and it carries their, their message carries his authority. It's, it's similar to sometimes if you have multiple children, you'll send one child with a message for another child. You're saying, hey, would you go tell so-and-so to come here? Now, when that child gives that message, sometimes they try to carry their own authority and they just say, hey, Go see mom, right? But really what it means is mom, mom says, come see me. And it's not carrying the child's authority, it's carrying mom's authority or dad's authority. So that's, that's similar to what we mean by talking about scriptures being inspired. Yes, they're human authors, but it's really carrying the authority of God. So don't slough it off. This isn't just a cool message or a wise message from somebody who's really old. This is a message from God himself. And, and this speaks to the, the benefits of inspiration. Now, Hebrews, just as a reminder, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, gives us a picture of this. Though It says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see that? So we don't stand in judgment of Scripture. Scripture stands in judgment of us. It, it judges our thoughts. It judges our intentions. It judges our heart. Psalm 19 uh, says a similar thing in, in vivid imagery. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous all together. So in studying the book of 1 John, we, we first want to acknowledge we're studying it because it is given to us from God, because of its, its divine authorship. But we're also studying it because of its human authorship. As I mentioned to you, we believe that the Apostle John was the author of this epistle. He, he, was, he wrote it at a time when he was the last living apostle. So view it from that sense. He's the last one. The others are gone. He's giving a message which the church at that time needed to hear. It needed the clarity of 1 John. It needed this message. It needed assurance. It needed reminders of truth. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's the message to our church as well. We need to hear this message that the Lord gave to the Apostle John. Now, what are the reasons why we think that John wrote this? If you, if you read through 1 John, and I recommend that you do that as we are studying our way through 1 John, we'll go verse by verse, but it's helpful if you're just reading through the book of 1 John as we go through this. But read through it, and nowhere does it mention that this is from the Apostle John. We call 1 John an epistle, but it does not bear the standard format of a letter. If you go to Paul's letters to the churches... It's a standard format. It says, Paul to the church of so-and-so, church of Corinth, church of Colossae, uh, right up front. But this epistle does not do that. So, so there's things that we can look at, both external to the book itself and internal, uh, that point to the fact that this book was written by the Apostle John. What are the, what's the external evidence? This is the, ex, this is the evidence from church history. In Don Guthrie's uh, New Testament introduction, he mentions that Polycarp, 
who lived uh, A.D. 69 to A.D. 155. All right, so just, I know we struggle with, uh, sometimes with dates, but, but keep in mind, A.D. Uh, 70 is when Jerusalem was destroyed. Uh, many of the disciples were living. Paul was ministering in, the, in that uh, time period and then on. So Polycarp lived in A.D. 69 to 155. And he is credited with providing the earliest clear allusion to the content of 1 John. What is that? What's the significance of that? It's saying that, that Polycarp knew of the letter of 1 John. He knew of it. And why did he know about it? It, it, is, it is said that Polycarp was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. So the Apostle John discipled Polycarp. Why is that important? Polycarp, in turn, discipled a man we know as Arrhenius, who lived in AD 125 to, to AD 202. And Donald Guthrie points out that Arrhenius cited the epistle of 1 John as authored by the Lord's disciple John, the writer of the fourth gospel. What's, again, what's the significance of this? Very early, we have a disciple of a disciple of John who is attributing the epistle of John as well as the gospel of John to the apostle John himself. Surely, if someone else had written this book, that error would not have been made so quickly, so soon. And certainly, someone who was a disciple or was a disciple of a disciple of the, of the apostle himself would have known better that the letter was not written by him, if, if indeed it was not written. Guthrie adds that both Clement of Alexandria who lived in A.D. 150 to 215, and Tertullian, who lived in A.D. 155 to 240, similarly cite the Epistle of John as being written by the Apostle John. Guthrie notes that from very early, very early times, the Epistle was not only treated as Scripture, but was assumed to be written by John, in spite of the fact that no specific claim to this effect is made by the writer himself, unquote. So if we look at external evidence... Very early, the, the letter of 1 John was accepted as Scripture and accepted as being written by John with very little challenge. The challenges to this letter don't come until much later, um, mainly from uh, German theologians uh, during the Enlightenment. What's the internal evidence from 1 John that it is written by the Apostle himself? Like I said, there's no mention of his name. He doesn't take credit. But again, that shouldn't surprise us. We've studied the, the Gospel of John, and we also noted in there that he did not at, one, at any time mention his own name or take credit for writing uh, that Gospel. But notice that he writes, whoever the author is, writes as an eyewitness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Look with me, if you will, at 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to read to you verses 1 to 3. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So, Whoever wrote 1 John writes as an eyewitness of, of Jesus' entire life and his ministry, his death and his resurrection, his ascension and his, his work afterwards, that he could write with such confidence. This is an eyewitness who has seen, heard, and touched the word of life. That certainly fits um, the Apostle John. But the writer also writes as one who is aged and mature and teaching with authority. Donald Guthrie points out in his introduction, introduction to the New Testament uh, that this epistle contains an unmistakable air of authority. The author clearly expects not only to be heard but to be obeyed. There is no disputing the truth of what he says. He condemns error in no uncertain terms and leaves no opportunity for compromise. Unquote. Examples for this include, listen, 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. Listen to John, or listen to the author. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You see how, how clear-cut, how uh, contrasted between light and darkness the author provides? 
He teaches us with great clarity and with great authority. Chapter 2, verse 4. The author says this, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't waffle here. He doesn't say, the one who says that he knows him and yet walks in darkness, well, he might not know God. He might not really be saved. The author comes out and clearly says, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. In other words, that person is not really saved. Don't believe him. Don't believe the person that says, I know God, but yet walks in the darkness. John says that person does not really know God. Chapter 2, verse 15, we see a similar example of this authority. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So he's giving a command, and a command with the authority of, of God, say not to love the world. And if anyone does love the world, then he certainly can't love God. Just clear cut. There's no compromise. There's no gray area. Either you love God or you love the world. There's no mixing of the two. It takes someone with great authority to, to say that. Or what about chapter, six, uh, chapter 3, verse 6? No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. That's, that's a cutting passage. No one who abides in him sins. Remember Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. And yet he's saying here, the author is saying, no one who abides in Christ sins. Who else could make such a statement but an apostle to make such an authoritative statement? And we're, 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 with each one of these passages, we're going to look at them in detail, but I'm just showing here the authority with which the author teaches. Here's, here's, a, here's another passage that shows the authority that the author teaches with. Chapter 4, verse 6. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Whoever is writing it is saying, if you listen to us, you're recognizing that our message comes from God. We are indeed from God. And if you don't listen to us, then you're not of God. As those who are of God listen to us. Why? Because, because those who are of God recognize that what we're saying is from God. Again, a great authority. Chapter 5, verse 21. Ends, the epistle ends with this. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. And again, it's, a, it's an imperative. It's a command to guard ourselves from idols. So time and time and again, the, the author presents these, these powerful uh, messages, clear-cut in, in black-and-white language between light and darkness, there's, there's just no compromise in, in John's mind. In, um, in, for the Apostle uh, Paul, when he deals into Romans, for example, we get into, okay, the, the question of how does, a, how does a Christian grow in progressive sanctification? So Paul wrestles with the question of the, the believer who wrestles with sin. In John's mind, there is no, there, there is not such a, such a person there's the person who walks in the light, and there's a the person who walks in the darkness. And a person who truly knows God is not going to walk in the darkness. And, and we'll get onto the nuances exactly what John is saying when we get there. But he talks with, with great authority. But he not only talks with great authority, he talks with great love. Many times he uses the phrase, little children. And he uses it in a non-condescending way. He's not using it. Uh, like many people today might use it in talking to it, or you're just immature, you're just little, you, you hardly know anything. John's not using the term little children in that way. He's using it in a, in a very loving way, a fatherly way. And he uses it multiple times. That, that the fact that the author calls his readers little children, as Guthrie points out, suggests that the author is an elderly man who could use more familiar terms without fear being misunderstood. And this, again, is in full agreement with the tra traditional picture of the venerable apostle during his latter years of ministry in Ephesus, unquote. And really, at the time that, the, that we believe the epistle was written, at this stage of church history, there was only one apostle uh, living at that time. There was no one else who could write with the kind of authority that we see in 1 John. There was no one else living who could, who could write with such an air of... Um, 
of maturity and wisdom uh, to call his readers little children without their misunderstanding or thinking it was some kind of condescending message. And notice with a message, with a message like 1 John that it's very pointed, it's very powerful, it's very clear, it's very authoritative. You would expect that a message like this would come with a seal of uh, authenticity. They would, it would be like one of Paul's letters. I, Paul, have written this with my own hand. Or I, John, have written this with my own hand. I'm an apostle and you better listen to it. Who else could write a, an, a, an epistle commanding such obedience and declaring these things in very clear-cut language with no um, uh, claim to its authorship? Who else unless the readers and the author knew each other very well and he had no need to to flout his credentials as an apostle. They knew who they're receiving this letter from. And that is the venerable uh, apostle John. The, the, The best evidence points to the apostle John as the author. Now, what do we know about John's life? I want to give you a very quick overview uh, just to give you a little portrait of who you're going to learn from. This is a person that, that you would want to sit at his feet and learn from him as uh, all that he learned as he walked with Christ. Now listen, he was one of the two disciples of John the Baptist who turned to follow Christ, as recorded in, first, in, John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29. He's not named, but we believe that he is one of those two disciples of John the Baptist who first followed Christ. So in other words, he followed Christ from the very beginning. He met Jesus again by the Sea of Galilee and at once followed him when Jesus called him. He was chosen as one of the twelve disciples of Christ. He was nicknamed by Jesus a son of thunder. That's important to point out. He was nicknamed by Jesus the Son of Thunder. That was not a misnomer. That describes John's character to a T. How is it that a Son of Thunder later in history became known as the Apostle of Love? Right? Speaks to his transformation. Do you think that you have uh, an untamed heart? You think you have a hard time controlling your temper? You think you have a hard time you know, being sanctified and walking in Christ? That was John. John's your disciple. Learn from him because you will learn how the Holy Spirit works to sanctify and to, um, to make us more like Christ. John was an eyewitness of the, of the raising of Jairus' daughter. John was an eyewitness of Jesus' transfiguration, one of a few disciples to see that. He was in agreement with his brother James's call to call down fire on the Samaritan village. Really? The Samaritan village didn't receive them. And he wanted to burn them up. Right? Again, describes why Jesus called him a son of thunder. Right? He and Peter were instructed to prepare a place for the apostles and Jesus to celebrate the Passover, and they went and did that. He, John reclined close to Jesus at the, pas- at the Passover and was the one who asked Jesus to identify the betrayer. So very intimate, very close with Jesus. He was one of the three who were closest to Jesus with Peter and James while he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus often pulled Peter, James, and John together for special missions and and more intimate uh, discipleship. Remember that John entered the court of the high priest with Peter at Jesus' trial when Jesus had been arrested. And he was the only one of the twelve who witnessed the crucifixion up in personal. All the rest fled. John was the one who was there. John was tasked with caring for Jesus' mother. Jesus gave him that responsibility while on the cross. He was the first of the disciples to look into the empty tomb. He was the first of the disciples to recognize the significance of the empty tomb. He was with the apostles when Christ appeared in the upper room. He was the first disciple in the fishing boat to recognize Jesus on the shore. He was thought by some to have been blessed by Jesus so that he would not die. Of course, John explains that's not what Jesus meant, but that's what was thought. That he, was, he had such a close relationship with Jesus that people thought he would not even die. He was with the apostles um, 
at the upper room at Pentecost, and he went with Peter into the temple, and he witnessed the healing of a lame man. He was bold when brought before the Jewish rulers and elders and high priest. He was sent with Peter by the apostles to Samaria to confirm reception of the word of God. That Peter, I mean, sorry, that, that John was sent on this mission is evidence of a remarkable change in John's life. Remember, John was the one who wanted to call down fire on the Samaritan village. But what is he doing now? He's going to the Samaritans to basically confirm that they had received the word of God, and he did so joyfully. John's brother James was the first apostle to be martyred. Uh, John was one of the prominent leaders of the church of Jerusalem, along with Peter and and James, the half-brother of Jesus, when Paul visited it. We see this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. It is this author, it is this writer who can write with such authority and maturity. He knows the master's personal touch upon his life. He knows the power of the Spirit to transform his life. He knows the love of the Father who is faithful to forgive and to sanctify, to perfect his life. This is the man that we will learn from. When did the Apostle John write his, uh, this, this epistle? When did, when did John write 1 John? What we, the letter we call 1 John? Well, there's no, again, there's nothing in the letter of 1 John that gives us an indication of the timing, so we have to draw it from uh, external evidences in church history. John left Jerusalem sometime before its destruction by the Romans in AD 70. We know that why, because he wasn't killed in that destruction. He, he left, um, and we don't know exactly when. Many of the Christians fled the city uh, as it was sieged, either before it was sieged or as it was being sieged by the Romans. They fled and scattered to various parts of the world. It is said that, that John took up residence in Ephesus. He seems to have had an extensive ministry to the churches in, in and around Ephesus, the area that we call Asia Minor. And he used the Ephesian church as a base of ministry. This is much the same way that Paul used the church at Ephesus as a base of ministry. So this is many years after Paul had left that area. Uh, remember, this is a time, uh, we don't know exactly the dating as far as when all the apostles were martyred. But eventually, all the apostles were martyred except for John, and he alone remained in Ephesus and used that as a, as a basis of ministry. So you see how Paul's earlier work is now used by John to uh, spread um, uh, the Lord's um, ministry among his churches in that area where John ministered. And most scholars believe that, that John wrote the Gospel of John first, and then later wrote the letters of, for, of John, of the epistles of John, we believe that 1 John was written sometime before uh, Domitian's massacre of Christians, which happened, we think, around AD 95, since John's letter mentions nothing of this. John's letter talks about how the world's going to hate you. Don't be surprised by this. But he really doesn't talk about trials or tribulations or persecutions uh, like the book of 1 Peter does. So from this, we gather that this letter of, of 1 John was written during a time when the church wasn't uh, experiencing a lot of external persecution. So sometime anywhere from the late 80s to early 90s AD is when we believe this letter was written. Written before John wrote uh, the revelation that we find at the end of, the, end of our Bibles. Now to whom did John write this letter? Again, they are not mentioned by name. They're not specifically named. But as we read this, we'll note the familiar sense that the author assumes with his readers. And from this, we can gather that they are people that John knows well, as the letter assumes familiarity with them and familiarity with the situations and the the problems and the trials and the false teachers that they were struggling with. Many scholars believe that, that 1 John was written to the churches in and around Ephesus, And this makes sense. We know that he ministered to those churches. He had a very um, close relationship with those churches. So it would make sense that he would write a letter to those churches in ministering to them. And these were predominantly Gentile churches with with a Jewish contingency intermixed. Now the letter of 1 John is clearly written to Christians. It is written to those who have made a public declaration of faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of of their sins. For example... Um, we see this clearly in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, 
where John says, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He says very confidently, You are from God. So while the Gospel of John is written as, a, as an evangelistic tool so that people would know that Jesus is the Christ and that believing have life in his name, this letter is written to people who already claimed faith in Jesus Christ. Now, why did John write this letter? What was the occasion of this letter? Well, John tells us clearly the reasons for writing this letter. He tells us the the goals of why he wrote this letter. We'll look at those in just a moment. For now, I want us to help uh, help us understand the historical context a little bit. Years before John came to Ephesus, the Apostle Paul warned the Ephesian elders with these words. And we find this in Acts chapter 20. Paul warned them with these words. He says, After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Unquote. Those are very piercing words. He says, Wolves are going to come among you. I know that. But even worse than that, some of your own number are going to arise. You're going to teach perverse things, and you're going to lead people astray. You're going to draw draw disciples away after yourself. And and to the churches to whom the apostle John wrote, they were likely living in a time when Paul's warning had, had come to pass. So Paul's warning had come and gone. The Ephesian church had grown and matured. And it's very likely that John ministered to them in a time when when Paul's warning was was actually coming to fruition, where there were elders who were teaching perverse things and were trying to draw disciples after their own name instead of um, being faithful to the teachings that Paul had given them. So the church was under attack from false teachers, who had left the church, but remained influential to the church. So these are people that would have likely claimed to be Christians, although having left the public assembly of the church. Now John doesn't mention any false teachers by name or heretical doctrines by name. Uh, Some think the attacks were coming from an early form of what came to be known as Gnosticism. Donald Burdick explains that that basic to the Gnostic facility Sorry, basic to the Gnostic philosophy was a dualistic belief that matter is evil and spirit is good. If matter is evil, it follows that this world is bad. The body and its world of materiality constitute a prison in which the soul is incarcerated and from which it needs to be redeemed, unquote. Now, this view has many theological repercussions, which John seems to address at various points throughout his letter. For example, he deals very clearly the fact that Jesus... Was, had a body that was actually, he could touch. And he mentions that in the first part. Later he'll say that any denial of, of Jesus having come in the flesh is of the Antichrist. Whether John was battling an early form of Gnosticism or not, it's debatable. Scholars do debate this. But what is clear, as Burdick points out, is that the heresy combat, combated in John's first epistle was perverted in its Christology and woefully deficient in its morality. It denied that Jesus was the Christ, the pre-existent Son of God. In the area of morality, the heresy was decidedly antinomian. Even though those heretics walked in darkness, they insisted that they neither committed sin nor possessed a sinful nature, unquote. And I think it's important to recognize, John's very clear about that. While he doesn't mention Gnosticism or any, any particular uh, heresy, he does very clearly draw out the fact that, that your, your Christology, your, what you believe about Christ, must be biblical. It must be faithful. It must be tied to Scripture. And that your life uh, must match what the Holy Spirit gave commands to His people to, to uh, how to live. There are areas of morality that, that John's going to deal with to, to expose those who say they believe in God, but yet really aren't of him. In this manner, John writes about non-negotiable characteristics of those who are truly Christians, as opposed to those who say they are the redeemed, but have no true fellowship with God. To these churches and us today, as believers in Jesus, John provides test of faith that true believers will pass 
which will provide joy, clarity, guidance, and ultimately assurance of one's salvation. As a result, the theme of 1 John can rightly be summarized, as Pastor MacArthur points out, a recall to the fundamentals of the faith, or back to the basics of Christianity. MacArthur adds that the apostle deals with certainties, not opinions or conjecture. He expresses the absolute character of Christianity in very simple terms. Terms that are clear and unmistakable, leaving no doubt as to the fundamental nature of those truths, unquote. Now, I want to be, just talk a moment about the structure of the epistle. First John is notoriously difficult to outline because it's not written like a traditional letter with a straight line of reasoning of one theme before moving to another. Yet that does not mean it is without any structure. Many scholars have likened the, the structure of 1 John as a spiral. Um, one scholar likened it to a winding staircase, always revolving around the same center, always recurring to the same topics, but at a higher level, unquote. Another scholar described it as being, quote, similar to a musical composition made up of several recurring themes around which interesting variations are developed with each new treatment rising to greater heights than the previous one. The conclusion is a grand finale in which the main theme of the piece is repeatedly sounded with spine-tingling force, unquote. You will repeatedly see this, this uh, the repetition of certain themes and certain ideas as we study the book of First John. And you will see how John provides doctrinal tests as well as moral tests of those who truly believe in Jesus Christ. And these are tests that cut both ways. They can help people see uh, that they are truly not saved if, if they claim to, to, to be a follower of Christ and yet don't meet those tests, but they also cut the other way. They provide encouragement and help to those who, who see these characteristics in their own lives. So we are studying First John because of its authorship, because it's both written by the Holy Spirit and written by the venerable apostle of John, and written by someone with much experience and with much maturity who has much to teach us. Now, as I mentioned to you earlier, John tells us very clearly the purposes why he wrote this. I want to look at those now. So not only are we studying the book of 1 John because it's inspired, it's written by someone um, who has much experience in walking with God, we're studying 1 John to increase our certainty of fellowship with God. We are studying 1 John to increase our certainty of fellowship with God. And we see this clearly from 1 John 1, 3. We have seen and heard we, what we have seen and heard. We proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. John is writing to increase our certainty of fellowship, not only with him, but of the Father and of his Son. Now, one thing I want to point out that that, uh, will help us as we study this is when you see the words, so that, in in verse 3 and in other passages, you need to pay special attention to what follows that. These words are a flagstick on a golf course. They reveal the goal and purpose that the author is trying to achieve. So John says that his purpose for his declaration is that he wanted his readers to have fellowship with him and with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So as we study this passage, um, we'll we'll see the, the Greek word for fellowship, which is koinonia, literally means a partnership or a sharing of life. It denotes a personal relationship with the author and with God. In a sense, this is a restoration of something that was lost in the Garden of Eden, true fellowship with God. John writes to increase the certainty of our fellowship with God himself. So we're studying 1 John to increase our certainty of fellowship, but that's not all. Look at verse 4. We are studying 1 John to increase our joy. John writes this, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. That our joy may be made complete. Again, did you see the flagstick that so that? It reveals another reason that John wrote his letter. John wrote to complete your joy. This is the joy of being intimately connected 
with the author of eternal life, with God himself and having fellowship with him. It is the joy also of of a, a teacher or a pastor seeing believers walking in the truth and honoring Christ with their lives. As we apply the lessons of 1 John, our joy in the Lord will increase. And that's why John uh, specifically calls that out. So we are studying 1 John to increase our certainty of fellowship, increase our joy. But there's more. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. We are studying 1 John to increase our resolve to fight sin. To increase our resolve to fight sin. John chapter 2, verse 1. John says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that, there's the flagstick, notice that, so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John highlights the problem of the person who claims to know God and yet is still enslaved to sin. D. Edmund Hebert, in his commentary, highlights the incongruity of Christians so-called Christians, or those who call themselves Christians, who sin. He says this, quote, What he has just said should make them realize that sin is so heinous in the sight of God that it may not be indulged in even once. The author, speaking of the author, he says, He refused to concede that any act of sin is consistent with a life of fellowship with God in whom there is no darkness at all, unquote. You see, John's going to tell us that 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 God has no darkness. Therefore, it makes sense that we would have no darkness in us as well. And that is John's line of reasoning and thinking. Thomas Watson once, once said this. He said, sin stamps the devil's image on a man. Sin stamps the devil's image on a man. Viewed from this perspective, can you see why God hates sin? It mars his image and stamps the devil's image in us? So we are studying 1 John to increase our certainty of fellowship with God, our, our joy, and our resolve to fight sin. But we are also studying 1 John to increase our discernment. We see this in John 2, verse 26. In John 2, 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Here we don't see the flagstick, but the purpose still comes out uh, in this verse. He is These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. In other words, what is he doing? He's issuing a warning. He's telling them, don't be naive. There are people, yes, people even within the church, yes, people who claim to be Christians, yes, people who claim to be godly, yes, people who claim to have a special close relationship with God, they are trying to deceive you and they will lead you astray unless you are discerning. And so he gives them warnings about this, and hence he gives us warning. So 1 John is is written to help us understand the theological war around us. We cannot just accept everybody who calls themselves Christians as being Christian. We cannot embrace every doctrine that is taught by a so-called Christian. There are many people out there who are trying to deceive fellow Christians, other Christians. So John writes to to help us not be naive. He he writes to help us to be discerning so that we would not be deceived. We are studying 1 John to increase our certainty of fellowship with God, our joy, our resolve to fight sin, our discernment. And all of this leads to what I call the grand finale, the grand purpose of 1 John that we find in 1 John 5, verse 13. Listen to John. He says, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that, there's your flagstick, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And, and this not only, these things not only refers to the immediate surrounding context, but we believe it applies to all that he has written. So this is like the grand purpose that, that John is, is writing for. It's similar to, to the ending of the Gospel of John, where he gives the grand purpose of his Gospel there. That, he's, that he wrote that gospel so that you may believe in the Christ and having believed in his name, you would have life in his name. Here he's saying he is writing these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. He pointedly deals with the question of assurance of salvation that I raised in the beginning and we'll deal with that when we get there. But the, the purpose statement here is very clear. John wrote 
to people who believe in the name of Jesus Christ in order that they may know that they have true fellowship with God, true, true salvation. In clear terms, John says that those who believe in the name of the Son of God should have eternal life and should have assurance of eternal life. And they should have assurance that they have eternal life. As your certainty of fellowship with God increases, as your joy in the Lord increases, as your resolve to fight sin increases, as your discernment increases, so too will your assurance of salvation. It is important important to note that as one commentator rightly pointed out, the assurance John has in view is not the result of wishful thinking, but is firmly grounded in the varied evidences set forth in the epistle. John's not interested in just wishful thinking. There's plenty of people today who very carelessly call themselves Christian, who very carelessly say that, yes, if they died today, they would go to heaven because they haven't given it careful thought and they haven't thought through that question through the lens of Scripture, which the Apostle John will help us to do as we study it verse by verse. So why are we studying 1 John? It's a letter given by God through a veteran apostle who has much to teach us. And he wants to teach us truths that will increase our certainty of fellowship with with God, our joy, our resolve to fight sin, our discernment, and ultimately to increase our assurance of salvation for the glory of God. We look forward to digging into the verses, each one of these um, in the coming weeks. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we want to thank you that you have given us your word. You've given us this book to help grow us, help mature us, to help protect us from those who would deceive us and to protect us even from our own uh, self-deception. Lord God, just do your work in us as we study this passage. Grow us as followers of Christ to be mature, to be mature men in Christ who are steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. It's the name of Jesus we pray this and ask this. Amen.